class. Lack of accountability of leaders. It's like, first of all, if you were overhiring, why did you overhire? These are the decisions that you made. No one else forced you to make these right. decisions. If you right. can run your organization with two-thirds, one-third of your current headcount, that was your responsibility to run it because that just affects your balance sheet and makes, you know, it's all your investors, you know, you, you have this responsibility to your investors and to your customers uh, at the same time. Yeah. So I think first and foremost, at the end of the day, however you're looking at it, it's just uh, accountability issues. It was purely a mistake uh, by the leaders. And I, I'm really sad that they are just getting away from it very easily. Yeah. If it happened to a public official, the head uh -huh. of the State Department or the Treasury Department or any, any like the mayor, like any public official – they would have to resign and step down or they would be replaced. Like if this was, you know, in any sort of, you know, actually accountable position. Aisha, two episodes every week. Leancast, product innovation and UX design podcast. What's up, everyone? It's Leancast, another episode. I'm here with Sam McAfee. He is the... Um, Managing Director and Founder of Startup Patterns. He's been in the field of training next generation of tech leaders for about seven years now. I hope I get the numbers right. I think it's a lot longer than, but I think as part of a Startup Pattern, it's been about six, seven years. Um, initially, our marketing lead, Aisha, uh, introduced me to Sam about another topic. But when I look into his profile, I really wanted him to come on the podcast and talk about training leaders. And here we are. Um, he was gracious enough to accept my invitation. My ears are open. I'm very curious about his experience. And hopefully you learn something from our conversation as well. Hi, Sam. How's it going? I know it's morning. You've got your coffee on. How's it going? Doing great. I'm really happy to be here, and I'm, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Thanks for having me. Sam, uh, I would love to tap into, like, sort of your background. Um, and feel free to go as back in the past as you want. Uh, how did you end up here training tech leaders? Like, what brought you here? Well, the most logical place to start, I think, would be that I uh, grew up on the East Coast. I was born in Boston. And when I went to university, um, I, I did not emerge out of a technical background. So I've mm -hmm. been a software engineer for 25 years, but I didn't start out that way. Um, I studied social sciences, economics, um, what some sometimes is called political economy. So kind of the integration of the social sciences, looking at how the world works in terms of macroeconomics and mm -hmm. geopolitical current events, that kind of thing. Um, so I studied a lot of that and I studied a lot of history and a lot of human organization. And so when I moved to California immediately after graduating, um, I was 
on, you know, wanted something different. I moved away about as far away from Boston as I could without swimming in the ocean <laughs> due west. Uh, ended up in the Bay Area, um, San Francisco, Silicon Valley area. And um, it took me a while to figure out what I was doing. Um, mm -hmm. And at that time, uh, you know, I, I made some friends. I started hanging out with a group of folks and they were all here for the dot-com boom, which was really picking up steam in the, in the late nineties. Um, and mm -hmm. I, you know, I was the, the social sciences graduate working weird, odd jobs, barely scraping by. And all of these friends were, you know, going out to nice restaurants, making like three times as much money as me. And, and, and in those days, it was hard then in San Francisco to survive, mm -hmm. you know, relative to, uh, you know, cost of living relative to wages. It's, it's always been, you know, at least for decades, it's been an expensive, expensive city to live in. And so a little grudgingly, my friends convinced me to learn some technology programming web development skills uh, so that I could get a real job, you know, in, in air quotes. <laughs> and um and so i i did that i i picked up a book on uh you know html i got that o'reilly's uh webmaster in a nutshell <laughs> book a lot of people remember that one with the spider on the front and um put together you know a basic toy website on the weekend i think it was the, the christmas break or the holiday break 1999 and um I put my resume on Craigslist because that that's how you got jobs back then. Craigslist was, was really huge in the really? tech scene. And um, I put my resume there as everybody told me to. And, you know, it was like my resume was pretty thin as, you know, 20, 25 year old and uh 24 year old. And it had like HTML on it somewhere because I just learned it. And it was like literally the next morning I had 50 emails from recruiters, you know, like we desperately need web developers. <laughs> Seriously. So I, I fell in to the, to the, you know, fell into the tech scene, like really because there was such, such froth in the market, you know, it was very frenzied and they would hire anybody who could learn how to code. And so I was lucky that, I basically got my first couple of gigs, you know, I was working mostly as a freelancer um, and I learned on the job. So what I, what was surprising to me from a social sciences background is that I took to software development and programming thought processes. It was really mm -hmm. attractive. You know, a lot of the yeah. same kind of thought process, analytical thinking that comes out of my like technical economics training. Um, you know, similar kinds of ways of using your brain. And so mm -hmm. I liked building things with code. I liked making websites. I liked learning how databases worked. And so I very quickly became, you know, a reasonably skilled full stack web developer, um, mm -hmm. you know, learning the hard way on the job for a couple of years. And that gradually transformed into starting my own small agency. So after a couple of years of doing that kind of work myself, um, I I had pretty good 
people skills, pretty good communication skills. And so I was able to bring in more projects and more work than I myself could do alone. And so I started looking around to my friends and other engineers that I knew, and I started putting together a team. So I didn't intend to build an agency, but it's kind of what happened organically. You know, I like put a team together, started working on bigger projects. And before I knew it, I was basically running a web dev shop. Um, oh, wow. And that, that proceeded for, that shop lasted for 10 years from 2002 to about 2000, the end of 2011. Um, wow. That was kind of a really core informative part of my, my sort of newly found technology career mm -hmm. where I was both learning myself how to be a better software engineer. So in, in those days, I was lucky also that my colleagues and friends in engineering were already tuning into this new way of building software that was called Agile. Um, and so mm -hmm. people were, you know, someone lent me their uh, Kent Beck's book on extreme programming pretty early on. So by the time I was putting a team together, Right. When I was looking for how do you run a software project, Agile was becoming more and more common. You know, it was still very niche, but this is like mm -hmm. 2003, 2004, around that time. Like people were starting to take Agile seriously outside of right. that early community of Agilists uh, who everybody knows, you know, um, it, it, it expanded by then mm -hmm. to be becoming more common with folks who were really serious about high quality software. And I took the notion of software craftsmanship very seriously in those days. And I myself became very committed to all the technical practices the, that are in extreme programming, right? Like pair programming and test-driven development and being careful about using design patterns and thinking carefully about architecture modularity and that sort of thing. So there was a certain focus in the early part of my career on the quality of the products that we were building, the quality of the code, mm -hmm. uh, which I still I still believe in, I still think is important. But I also was learning the process as well. How do you mm -hmm. how do you work as a team to produce mm -hmm. a product when you have multiple people writing code in the same system, you know, we it was sort of early days of version control back then. So we were figuring that out. Um, we didn't have Git. We had things like SBN, if you remember those. Um, you know, so it was a lot of like, how do we how do we build code with quality? Um, you know, a lot of automated testing, that sort of thing. So there's a very like technical period of my career. And I think it's really relevant because some of that focus on the primacy of the quality of code was challenged as things developed in Silicon Valley. So for us, mm -hmm. um, you know, after the dot-com crash, you know, which, which, you know, I had survived and continued to work, there was a lot of head scratching about how startups are built and is taking, you know, a slide presentation to a venture capitalist and showing them your big idea and then giving you $10 million and then you hiring a bunch of en engineers and hiding in a in a cave for 18 months and coming out with your big product that customers may or may not want wasn't really the best way to build things, right? So we benefited from that because there were a lot there was a lot of money sloshing around and we did, you know, 
as a shop, we would do outsourced technology work, either for startup founders or big companies. But we saw a lot of projects fail. We, we built a lot yeah. of projects that didn't really go anywhere. And it didn't feel good for us as engineers to work mm-hmm. on something that didn't matter. And so when the work of people like Eric Reese and Steve Blank started getting passed around in our circles, there's this idea that you should actually talk to customers first. Mm-hmm. That was a big aha moment for me. And so mm-hmm. I was fortunate to be around those communities pretty early on. And I took the lean startup way of thinking really seriously because it, it resonated with me. I'd seen it happen. I'd seen a lot of failed startups with perfectly architected, beautiful code that nobody mm-hmm. asked for, you know, nobody was going to pay for it. <laughs> so, you know, the idea of like, well, maybe we should do some customer development first before we invest in all this fancy engineering, that I, that seemed like a real shift in the thinking in Silicon Valley for me. And I got involved in that community and I started going to the conferences and I was reading all the books. And along the way, the, uh, the Great Recession happened and it, well, you know, it basically crushed our small web development business, you know, in slow motion over a series of years. And um, I ended so up from 2008 to 2011, right? So it's a three years, yeah. like a long, slow decline, right? It just got harder and harder to find good projects, and you know, or we'd like find something, and then the budget would get canceled. Like the the economy was still really volatile for a number of right. years after the first crash, and so I ended up going and serving as a senior technology leader in four different companies in a row for a period of about five years, right up until I started Startup Patterns. So I I had a couple of roles where I was the senior technical person in in a small early stage startup, right? So you're thinking like 10, 15 people, you know, I have Mm -hmm. the title of of CTO, but, you know, CTO of a team of like three, right? So, you know, there's a lot of title inflation, as we call it, in, in <laughs> yeah, startup, yeah. startups in the Bay Area. You know, um, I was, you know, I also experienced that. Uh, but I also had a couple of roles where I was in a somewhat larger organization of a couple hundred people as a director of engineering or like a senior um, technical consultant at, a, at another agency uh, called Neo. And so I did get to experience what it's like to be a. Uh, the leader of a technology team, sizable mm-hmm. organization, you know, 20, 25 engineers inside a bigger organization where when you look at the structure of the company, I'm actually what's called middle management, right? Like I wasn't at the sea level, right? You know, I was responsible for all these people below me, but kind of getting crushed between what the teams wanted to do and what the leadership wanted to do and having to be that translation piece between those layers. And that was a really tough place to be in a really rude awakening. And so I think to kind of round out the story, uh, I went back out on my own in 2016. And while I was at Neo, uh, Neo was basically kind of a spin out of Pivotal Labs. I mean, my fellow Neons who hear me say it that way might have different ways of describing it, but uh, it was, you know, essentially founded by um, that style of thinking. And we, you know, we built products for, for big brands 
um, with a combination of, of agile software development, lean startup product management and, and user centered design, you know, really kind of balancing the, the, the three legs of the stool or the product trio. And one of the things that was great about being at Neo is that they really encouraged me and, and others as, as, uh, lead consultants to do, uh, thought leadership by writing and, and going to conferences and giving talks. And so I was very mm-hmm. encouraged to be out there in the world, sharing our point of view about how products should be built. And so that, that was the impetus for writing my book. Um, there were a couple of other colleagues that were writing books at the time. And we had a little book writing club we were kind of encouraging each other to write. And so I wrote startup patterns, the book basically, as just a way of capturing everything I'd learned up to that point, you know? So if like Mm -hmm. you were sitting, if you and I went and had coffee, you know, nine or 10 times in a row and you asked me about different topics, that's essentially what the book is like. Like each chapter is we sit at coffee and we're talking about X, Y, and Z. So I just wrote it all down and I published it as a book. And when I went out on my own, uh, you know, I was going to be a, a solo consultant for a while and, and just go and do technology and product coaching and, and work with teams. I just picked Startup Patterns as a brand name because I already had the book and I already had the website and the URL. So it seemed like a logical place to start. And so that's where Startup Patterns got its name. And I, where the book came from, where the name really came from is a longer story, perhaps over drinks sometime. But, you know, we started doing you know, I worked on my own for several years going Mm -hmm. into companies and primarily working with the teams, you know, working with, you know, digital product teams, engineers, designers, and product managers who were trying to adopt ways of thinking and ways of working that are more like startups. So Mm -hmm. a lot of companies that are bigger, uh, Mm -hmm. where there's not as much innovative thinking, you know, I worked in a lot of, you know, innovation labs where they're like, can you please come and, you know, teach our folks how to act like a startup. So I did a lot of that kind of work, but gradually over time, um, what I realized was that no matter what I did to get the team functioning and I'm, I'm really good coach with teams. I can get teams shipping and, you know, building good stuff and talking to customers. It takes some time, depends on the team, but I know how to do that. But what I found was that the, you could get the team really doing great from a product development perspective. And still, if the structure and attitudes and culture of the surrounding organization uh-huh. was not a, a friendly environment for that kind of work, they would never really reach their full potential. And in, and in fact, a lot of times, the ultimate market outcomes aren't really determined necessarily by how good the team is building the product, but actually the organization itself. And so I started focusing more on working with the leadership team on how can, how can they create an organization that is friendly to modern ways of building products. And a lot of That's- that is getting out of the way. Like, how can they yeah. let the teams actually do what they know how to do? What kind of it's, – it's a massive statement and such a – like, a, it, it clearly comes from someone who 
has been in the trenches for so such a long time. What kind of friction or obstacles or well, friction or obstacles you've seen around teams that enforced by the organization, culture, and environment, the surroundings of the team. Well, could you expand on this a bit? Sure. There's a lot, but let's yeah. try to narrow it to maybe the, the, the key things. I've, the first thing that I would say is when organizations don't have a very clear direction and direction in terms of a clear vision of what they're trying to achieve in the world, not just a vision of their own organization, but a vision of what are they trying to do with customers or with, you know, some particular part of the external world, what are they trying to do in the world? And that that needs to be really clearly articulated, right? Like mm. what is the company about? And a lot of companies think that they have that. They think they've articulated it. But when you really go and look at it and read those mission statements and vision statements, a lot of it is pretty fluffy. It's not really mm. clear what is important to the company. And so when they don't have that clarified and they and they're not really clear about their values, you know, what what kind of company do they want to be? You know, do they value openness and transparency or do they value efficiency and precision like those can be com competing values right like there can be contradictions in terms of what's mm -hmm. important so the and that's the job of the ceo and the leadership team of the company to articulate what is this company about what is it going to be like to work here and more importantly than anything what's actually important for us right now so what you they need to have a clearly articulated strategy that tells everyone that works there these are the things that we're focused on this year the next couple of years whatever like this is our strategy our goal is to be the best in the world at x and to do that we're going to do these core things we're going to build these capabilities or we're going to tackle these markets a b and c in this order and everything else is not mm. important. These are all the things right. we're going to say no to. And so mm. for starters, I think the, that many companies, especially startups and especially at the growth stage when they've already had some success and they're starting to expand, they often will stumble by trying to do too many things at the same time too quickly. And that could be expanding to new geographic areas too early. It could be mm -hmm. we've captured one market segment. Now we're going to go after another one too early. It could mm -hmm. be just adding too many bells and whistles into the product because they're trying to compete with everyone else. And so they have to have this and they have to have that because everyone else has it. And so when they're not narrow enough in their focus, laser focused on a particular customer segment with a particular problem and really differentiate themselves as like, here's, here's how our company is going to solve this problem in our unique way. If they're not doing that, what happens on the ground is that the teams get pulled in all kinds of different directions because when the leadership's mm. not crystal clear, 
when they haven't Ooh. articulated a vision, a strategy, OKRs, or some some other way of object defining objectives, then it's up to the middle managers who manage all those teams to interpret, you know, read the tea leaves and try to figure out what does leadership actually want. And a, and a lot of those managers will, for for very often very innocent reasons, just make their own decisions based on their local environment. Like I run this mm-hmm. department, you know, leadership says we got to make more money. They're not super clear about how to do it. Here's how I think yeah. we should do it. And so you've got all the different managers in the middle of the organization with different competing priorities. And in software, as many of us have noticed, the teams all have to work together and coordinate, you know, right. however the teams are organized. And right. so you've got everybody has too many things on their to-do list, too much stuff on their backlog, and there's not alignment about what is actually important. So that, I think, there's sort of this ripple effect that comes all the way through the organization that if if the focus isn't crystal clear, it wreaks havoc on people's ability on the ground to be productive. And then what happens is the leaders realize like the teams are unable to ship good product that's successful with customers very quickly because there's a lot mm-hmm. of confusion and misalignment. So what do the leaders do? They say, why are the teams so slow? Why aren't they shipping mm-hmm. faster? Why aren't we revenue is down? What's wrong with them? Let's go get some consultants to try to make that engineering team faster. That was me for a while, right? Like mm-hmm. let's let's get a let's get some agile coaches and 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 show the team how to how to ship faster, right? And the problem is ship what faster, right? Like that's not yeah. actually the problem in the organization. <laughs> so leadership needs to look really in the mirror first before they start looking around the organization for problems. Because the problem is usually, it usually starts in the executive suite. As you were unpacking te- unpacking this angle, just God knows how many different startups in my mind popped up that I used to work with that they were facing and I'm working with right now that they we're facing something similar like this as you described. Yeah. Recently last year we worked with this we worked with a startup that got blown up because they were addressing something really addressing a need in for many startups like SaaS startups really well. Then they got blown up, they raised a lot of money and they found investors were like, hey, where you want to take it? And they were like, oh we don't no, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and then they they yep. they they, ra- they raise massive amounts of investment, and then he, like the the founders were like too busy spending that money <laughs> than like actually thinking yeah. about where they want to go next. And it's a yeah. very very crucial very crucial issue for many many companies, startups, and enterprises alike. Absolutely, yeah. I think the investment piece is a big one that the the more like there you, there's there's a just right amount of capital um yeah you know i mean i'm I'm a big fan of bootstrapping companies as much as possible. I think that in there are some companies 
you know, certainly there there are scenarios where investment is is required and is the better option. I'm not sort of anti-investment, but I think that it's a very careful decision for companies to make that that when you when you get capital in the in the equation, yeah, it really changes everything. It changes the dynamics right. of the company. It changes what's important. It changes the expectations. Um, it changes how you make decisions. And sometimes, right. sometimes that's good. Sometimes it's actually a forcing function for CEOs that are a little bit all over the place. It can be good to have you know smart investors on the board who can yeah. guide you if that's if you're lucky enough to be in that situation. A lot of times, you have capital that is is. You know, sort of, we talk about like you know, smart money and and maybe the opposite, <laughs> right? Whatever it is, dumb money. I don't know. Um, you know, just having the money with demands for ROI or demands for returns without the thought process that goes with it is not actually helpful. And I've I've seen that more times than I can count. Um, mm-hmm. And and increasingly private equity too. I've seen a lot of startups that get to a certain point, and, mm-hmm. and it seems like private equity something we never really heard that unless you were into wall street like 10, 15 years ago. And then Mm -hmm. I think it's so much more common for private equity firms to buy growth stage startups. Yes. And and try to, I don't know, do something with them. And that something is not always very pretty for the people that work in the company. And, you know, I think um, I'll be writing about this more in the future, but I think there's kind of a lack of an understanding about how startups work. That's really important if you're going to invest, um, particularly if you're going to invest in a couple of companies and try to like execute mm-hmm. a merger or something like that. So it puts all this pressure. And when there's a lot of money, it's like adding fuel to a fire, right? Like the fire can really get out of tr- control if there's too much wood or too much gasoline or too much oxygen. You know, it's like you get a raging blaze, but it's not necessarily doing anybody any good. Um, and too little investment, you know, can, uh, can choke it out. So it's a really a balancing mm-hmm. act of, of having the right amount of investment. And I think that the dynamics of the market in recent years have pushed startup leaders or, or growth stage company leaders to take more, you know, to take money, to take more money than they should to mm-hmm. go for these like bananas valuations that are being pushed more by the market than by what the company is actually capable of. Right. And that creates an enormous amount of strain on not just the founders, but the teams. They're like, mm-hmm. great. Now we have to like, we barely know what we're doing and we're supposed to 10 X our revenue in the next, you know, you know, three to five years or whatever it is. Like it's, it's really an unrealistic expectation. And that puts a lot of pressure on everyone in the organization. A hundred percent. I cannot really, I cannot really agree. disagree. It's a hundred percent fact. And, you know, we are sort of like, a significant portion of our clients come from the startup world and just becoming really a pattern. Certain certain startups come to us. Their 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 furnace is 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 firing up. They have they are forced to grow, and they want us to give them this magic wand or to invent this magic wand for them that. Hey, this is your way out. This is how you can grow. But often what we realize is like, we often, we end up stop working with them really soon after we start. The money is good. So don't get me wrong. But like, you know, at the end of the day, I think 
you know, there's a notion that people, folks think that service agencies, they just take any project. No, actually, you know, personally, like, you know, of course, I wouldn't say no to big money, but after some time, we need to see that we are driving the business forward. And if you see that we are not generating impact, it just doesn't really sit well um, with me as a, as a leader, first and foremost. You know, we don't want just money for the sake of money. We want to see that we are creating impact. Hopefully, it makes lives of some people better, right? right. When, when, when that doesn't happen at some point, we know that there is going to be an end soon to this relationship. Yep. Yeah, it's really the same situation with us. I think that, you know, there there is this mythology that service providers, consultants, vendors will, you know, are out to make a buck and will take any project. And I think that all of the times in my career mm-hmm. when I've taken a project that for a, for a lot of money, which, you know, has sometimes happened, still not all the time, but sometimes, and I had the inkling or there was an intuition that this was going to be a bad project. You're right. 100%. There was something about it. Toxic environment, you know, poor decision-making, whatever it was. Those projects always ended up being regrets. You know, like, you know, maybe we paid our bills for a few months, but, you know, we got, now we have an ulcer and I'm drinking too much whiskey and like trying to recover from this horrible experience, right? Like I don't personally want to live like that. I went out on my own specifically so that I didn't have to work in toxic environments. Why would I willingly take on a toxic environment again? (laughs) Right? Yeah. That's the best feeling in the world as a consultant to say no to a project and go find a percent. 100%. 100%. I mean, I mean, so often misunderstood because I'm, ex- when you said that, I was like, hey, uh, is, is he me or me? is it me? Like, what, what's going on? Because exactly what, what I did that was like, okay, enough of these well paid checks. What am I doing that, what can I do to make better contribution to the world? Yeah. Like, I mean, I'm not saying yeah. I'm doing it. I'm not by no means I'm I'm there, but at least quitting that toxic environment is the beginning of that journey. Um, yeah, it's it's hundred percent, hundred percent. What you have just said is is hands on a, a good reflection of what's happening to the startup world. And I yeah. genuinely, when I talk to founders, Sam, I tell I tell them, hey, don't take the venture money as much as possible resist to that because it it helps you build a sustainable business yeah not only that but having a sustainable business first puts you in a better position when you're negotiating with them right expand yeah if if you so they you know investors who are who work in in venture who are investing in in the startup world uh it looks like they are risk takers because startups are risky right so there's this mythology that ooh you know they're they're so sort of risk taking but actually most of them are very conservative right like uh-huh. they would certainly prefer to give money to a sure thing right like anyone who's putting money out there vc included 
would really prefer to take the sure thing over something that's entirely uncertain. So mm-hmm. a lot of times, you know, what I what I often tell founders when they're thinking about fundraising is that if you're in a situation where, you know, the best time to put money into a company is when you absolutely have nailed product market fit, which mm-hmm. by the way, a lot of people will wonder about what that means. Um, basically, just to simplify, it's like, when your problem is trying to meet demand, not find it, right? Like there's so much demand coming in that you can't fulfill enough orders for your stuff. You know, people are buying your cupcakes off the shelf and you can't make enough fast enough. That's when you have product market fit, right? And so investing in a business like that for the, for the investor means that they're gonna, you're going to put money in marketing and that marketing is going to work right away because you've already proven that people want your stuff. And then you'll put money in expanding your operations by whatever, hiring engineers or hiring other people because you already have a system in place. So it's adding to something that's already known to work. And that's the best situation for the investor. It's also the best situation for the founder too, because if the investors don't see that you have traction and you're starting to make revenue and they're, um, you know, it's not as much of a sure thing. You know, they have you over a barrel, as we say, that like you are in a disadvantage to relative to them. You need the money. Uh, They don't necessarily need the investment so much. They've got other startups they can invest in. And so I think once you've achieved a point where you're you're already kind of done it on your own and you've reached as far as you can go without more capital, then they really need they're looking for investments. They have to they have to invest that money right? They got invested somewhere. And then you're in a stronger position to negotiate and and retain more ownership of the company and call the shots. Um, So why would you put yourself in a position where you're you're sort of in a weaker position and you're desperate Mm -hmm. for the money and then you'll take a bad term sheet and, you know, all these bad outcomes will happen. So I think from my perspective, it's better for founders if they can wait as long as possible and prove out the market fundamentals or, you know, the unit economics of what they're building before really taking capital. Like taking capital is kind of like a last resort to, to be able to grow when you're, it's already pretty sure that by investing that money, you're going to get growth. Um, anytime before that is pretty dangerous. I really sometimes like necessary. It sometimes yeah. is necessary. I understand that, but try to be avoided as much as possible. You know, your definition of product market fit is very hands-on. It's like when the solution you're developing is trying to meet the demand, not to find it, right? Yeah. And I, I think, I think it's, you know, in my own, you know, when I was part of two, uh, part of two founding teams of startups, and I re- remember that. For the first one, uh, we went from having no orders to have over a hundred orders overnight. So we oh, filled yeah. up the we filled up the entire co-working space with Apple product because that's what we were like, you know, renting to people. And then it's exactly resonated with me because we were just trying to meet the demands. You know, the dim the demand was like people were trying to find us right so i think that's yeah. very uh, that's a very good definition of of product market fit that i've heard so far in the past year yeah 
there's something else that you said that I want to want to just underline or speak to a little bit about the pur- purpose versus profit, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I, th- I think there's been there's no question in my mind that the the pandemic has changed things in a in a pretty fundamental and permanent way. And I think some of these things were coming a long time before the pandemic, but there's a lot of ways that on the surface feel like we're, you know, a lot of places are kind of feel back to normal and people are, you know, going out to restaurants and working in offices and it, it all feels like maybe it was sort of a, uh, a thing of the past. I mean, to be fair, there's still a lot of people getting sick and a lot of people dying. So it's not totally over, but in our kind of professional industrial technical world, mm-hmm. it feels like, Oh, we've moved on. We're back to, it's back to 2019. Right. But I think right. that, that that was an incredibly, incredibly traumatic experience for the majority of people in a really deep and internal way. And yeah, all throughout the pandemic and ever since, I, I mean, I'm constantly talking to new people. I network a lot. I talk to people mm-hmm. who are looking to do a new job or just want to talk to me about the industry. And I've consistently found that most people I talk to are much more tuned in to the concept of what am I doing on this planet? 100%. And how am I actually improving the world that we live in and serving others? rather than just trying to make a buck and either, you know, trying to survive or trying to get rich. And those things have become less important to more and more people. And I think that that is true in a lot of, you know, those people are in organizations. So the mindset of the organization, I think it's important for leaders to understand right. that they shouldn't just paper over that the, this shift in, um, you know, in the zeitgeist, as one might say, that people are really thinking about these things and taking it really seriously. So, you you know, you and I joke about, I mean, it's only half joking, but we joke about, you know, saying no to toxic clients. But I think that a lot of people who are, um, you know, quitting their jobs and, and in the United States, that is still very much underway. That's actually mm-hmm. accelerating. What they were calling the great resignation has not slowed down. It's actually increased. No way in 22 compared to 21, a, a pretty big amount. Um, so there's even with the, the, the tech layoffs feel made it seem like, Oh, you know, tech is falling apart and everybody's losing their job. But the fundamental numbers in the economy actually don't, don't show that they show a lot of strength and resilience. And so a lot of people do feel safe to, you know, I've worked at this place for this long time and I've never really been happy, but I've been afraid to leave. And something has happened where people are saying, you know what, you know, screw it. I I can't take this anymore. I got to find something that's really more meaningful to me where I feel like I'm actually helping people. I'm doing work that aligns with my passion and and the kinds of things that I want to do. And, and it's broadly not just a selfish thing. It's really a taking care of yourself, a wellness and well-being and caring about others place where this, this idea is coming from. It's not just like, oh, I'm giving up on my job because I, I can't mm. hack it. It's because I've decided that this organization is not in line with my values. And I'm going to go find one that really is. And so I think that 
is something that a lot of leaders in organizations right now should very much be paying attention to. And my question to them is, how are you making your organization one where people actually want to come and work because they do want to want to make the world a better place in some way through the, through their work? Well, I mean, many directions we can take this conversation um, to, but what I would love to add to what you have said and um, add another dimension to what you have said is that a lot of executives, a lot of um, founders, they don't understand the zeitgeist DNA of today is that making money is has been never easier like when you started building startups in early 2000 and compared to now literally you can come up with an idea and over weekend through zapier and figma and webflow and couple of ai tools you can put together a pretty automated system that could to your definition meet some demands so as as long as you can find a sustainable growing demand as as long as you are a good collage maker of apps you can pretty much run a one-man business online business and generate a six-figure uh, annual revenue I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying it has gotten a lot easier than 15 years ago, 20 years ago, oh, yeah. 10 years kids ago, days, five years ago. These have no idea how easy they have it compared to, compared to when we started. <laughs> and yeah. we know it. And we know it because we have seen that, how difficult mm -hmm. it was in 2012. Like I, I, I've said this many times, Sam, and I'm, I'm really happy that you'll be talking about this. I'm talking to young designers um, and tell them in 2011, 2010, it wasn't about how you can design like, the quality of your craft. It, about, it was about, the question was for, for designers was like, can you design a website? It wasn't, <laughs> yeah. it wasn't about how good yeah. you are. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> That's totally fair. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Oh, I remember those days well. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's great. It's great. It is a lot easier these days. But I think like the the fact that that getting in touch with our purpose mm. and and who we are as people and what kind of world do we want to live in is just I'm overjoyed that that's becoming increasingly a question that people are asking and the, and there are a lot of leaders who are asking it too i mean that's the great thing is there is a growing number of executives ceos and others who are also looking out at the world you know they have like been doing the grind for 20 30 years they've got kids mm -hmm. in college they're trying to figure out are they going to actually make an impact that that they care about when they're you know, when they're old and on their deathbed, are they going to look back and be like, boy, I'm glad I made all that money. Like, is that really what they're going to going to be thinking about? No, probably not. Right. So I think that it's really good that that is becoming more serious and more front and center. And it affects all the decisions that we make about how 
we structure our organizations, how we articulate our values to our, our teams and our employees, how we how much we allow them to be autonomous and creative mm-hmm. in the work that mm-hmm. they're doing, mm-hmm. you know, how we incentivize people. Um, I think all of that is really shifting and, you know, we're doing our best to push that shift faster at Startup Patterns and we'll continue to do so. Um, Mark, yeah, I Mark, think it's really great. I, I listened to an interview or like conversation with Mark recently. He was saying that Facebook and Facebook um, employees need to get back to like initiating things and, you know, do break things and without waiting for the manager to tell them what to do. So it was surprising for me to hear this because I wasn't sure what happened to Facebook that they ended up here, that he's saying these things, right? So I, I want to get your um, sort of like a take on or like pick your brain on this recent uh, layoffs, which was very dramatic. It was very inhuman, in my opinion, that people mm-hmm. had to go to this um their entrance to the to the office and uh, swipe their card. Get an and email they can, in the middle yeah. of the night. Yeah, you know, and be yeah. locked out of their their office in the morning. Yeah. What what happened to this big organization that they ended up here? Is this OKR things are such a bad thing that like really limit? Because I never worked with OKRs. I never got it. But like OKRs as. as it's just one amongst many other tools that these organizations use to sort of like uh, align teams. What What's your take on these recent massive layoffs that's uh, happened in the last months? My take is that these layoffs were primarily a way to allow the leaders of the most powerful, largest technology organizations in the world and their financial backers to take the growing power of technology workers whose wages had increased and their leverage at the bargaining table had increased over the last several years when you know, just a year ago or six months ago, it was impossible to find good talent. We all remember hearing that. This was a really convenient way to break the spirit of those tech workers and say, hey, you're not in control. We're in control. So we're going to change the game and make it really easy for us to make make technology labor a little cheaper for us, right? And at the same time, it makes our balance sheet look better and it makes our stock price go up. And so a lot of people made a lot of money from these layoffs. Let's not make any mistake about that. Mm -hmm. And yet these companies, most of them, Google, uh, Amazon, you know, have billions of dollars in cash, right? Like the idea that, oh, we're running, you know, sales are down and we're running out of money. We're, we're. You know, these are such tough times. The fundamentals, they're, you know, they're all public companies. You can read the numbers yourself. That That is an excuse to mm-hmm. basically kick the, the tech workers in the teeth and put them back in their place. I think it was a shift in the power dynamics between labor and capital, frankly. 
to put it in extremely stark terms. And I think that folks in our industry should see it that way, that they should see that this was a power grab, that there was a lot of nervousness about the low levels of unemployment, that like it was, you know, hard to find uh, good talent. And as a result, people were able to negotiate better salaries and better working conditions. Now, granted, like that was a hyperbolic curve. Some of those salaries were pretty outrageously high, but you know, compared to the salaries of the people who made those decisions, it's peanuts, right? Mm -hmm. So I Mm -hmm. think it was very much a poke in the eye of the tech industry workers that, you know, don't get too high and mighty about your position in this arrangement. That's that's just how I see it. And also, and it's like, had that know, effect. It's yeah. actually affected the mindset because now everybody that I know is running scared and saying, oh, my God, there's been all these layoffs. Does it mean that the party is over? Like, look at the economy. The U.S. employment rate is still 3.5 or 3.4. Mm-hmm. The GDP is still growing. Like, there's no recession. So I, I just see it as kind of a little bit of a bait and switch. Um and it's unfortunate, but it, it it happens periodically in a lot of industries, and it just happened to happen in ours. I think it's just purely coming from the lack of accountability of leaders. It's like, first of all, if you were overhiring, why did you overhire? These are the decisions that you made. No one else forced you to make these right. decisions. If you right. can run your organization with two-thirds, one-third of your current Headcount, that was your responsibility to run it because that just affects your balance sheet and makes, you know, it's all your investors, you know, you, you have this responsibility to your investors and to your customers uh, at the same time. Yeah. So I think first and foremost, at the end of the day, however you're looking at it, it's just uh, accountability issues. It was purely a mistake uh, by the leaders. And I, I'm really sad that they are just getting away from it very easily yeah if it happened to a public official the head Uh of the state department or the treasury department or any any like the mayor like any public official they would have to resign and step down or they would be replaced like if this was you know in any sort of you know actually accountable position so i I think you're absolutely right Uh, sort of a closing of the conversation it's been such a lovely conversation some of the, I think the best way I could end my weekend. How do you see 2023? It's been a hell of a year so far in the past three months. You know, ChatGBT got yeah. introduced and this, all these layoffs happened. So um, where do you think we are, we are heading? Well, it's really hard to say. There are a lot of contradictory forces. My Mm -hmm. guess is that we're in a position, we're in a place right now of a lot of resetting and reconfiguration Mm -hmm. in the economy, in people's minds, in the way that business is done. Um, And so I would expect that this year will probably be a little bit bumpy as those things are getting worked out Mm -hmm. and that you know, really a recalibration of markets, of attitudes. Um, and so it might be a little bit of a volatile year, to be honest. I mean, I'm, my team and I, we're kind of bracing ourselves for 
dramatic upswings and downswings and um, not really sure what's going to happen. But I think it's a time for people, people are really reevaluating their priorities and rethinking mm -hmm. how much they're aligned with purpose. And so, and people are still switching and changing jobs. So there's a lot of like shift and change that's happening that'll probably continue to play out for the rest of the year. And I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see where we land at the end of the year. And if we kind of cleared enough space where 2024 can be mm -hmm. a little bit more of a cleaner, you know, period of, of growth and prosperity, it, it's really hard to know. These are definitely mm -hmm. tumultuous times. I, I think it, it requires people to be more in touch with what's important to them. Because regardless of what's going on out there, the most important thing you can do is know yourself and know your own values and make mm -hmm. sure that you're working and living in alignment with those values and 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 connecting with other people who who share them and supporting each other. And I think that's like that's what's going to get us through this, right, is is being positive and compassionate and having empathy for one another. Um, trying to get rid of a lot of the divisive, angry language that's been flying around the last few years. Like, I'd like to see less of that. I'd like to see more dialogue, more compassion. Um, and I think that that's possible. I think it's happening and I'm seeing it more and more. So, um, yeah, that's kind of how I see the, the year playing out. Um, I couldn't yeah. really end my week and uh, an episode uh, with better way of that you did, uh, I I would like to thank you enough to be um, sharing your Monday uh, Friday morning with me, and uh, it's been such a lovely conversation. I wish yeah, you a fantastic sure. weekend ahead, and hopefully we uh, see each other soon. Yeah, and just if you don't mind the small plug, um, there's a conference in Hamburg in the late June, uh, the pro product at heart. Um, and I'll be, I'll be speaking there at a leadership forum. So, um, you know, I'll be, I'll be in that part of the world, uh, in the, in the spring. So, you know, yeah, maybe I come over there or you come to Berlin either way. Yeah. Be great to catch up and see each other in person and continue the conversation. Would be a pleasure. Thanks, folks. Uh, that's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. Until next one.